I'd like to invite the rest of you to join me in opening your Bibles to the sixth chapter of the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and we're looking at it from Luke's perspective. And so we're in chapter six this morning. As you're turning there, I might ask you to be thinking about the big questions in life. You know, what are the big questions in life? Maybe even pretend for a moment like we're not in church and and we're talking outside of this kind of setting about what, what are the big questions of life. And when we're talking about little kids, uh, maybe what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, what do you like to do? What sports do you play? What sports do you want to play? Uh, we usually have it on that level. Uh, you get a little older, and then it's, again, probably sports, uh, entertainment, different kinds of activities. We get a little older. What kind of profession do you want to have? Where do you want to go to school? Do you want to go to school? These are the big questions in life. Get a little older. Do you want to get married? If you do want to get married, what kind of person might you want to marry? Who will that person be? Do you want to have children? Then you get in a career and then it's, do I want to stay in this career? Do I want to take a different career path? Do I want to take a different job? How many children do we want to have if we're married? And all those kinds of things. They're important questions, no doubt. They're the big questions. Important, big questions. But the most important question is not about our sports or our entertainment or our relationships, the most important question of all has to do with our relationship with God. We might put it in terms of, when you breathe your last breath, what happens then? What happens when you breathe your last breath? Now, I realize that makes us uncomfortable, and we are in perpetual denial as human beings. We don't want to talk about that. But wouldn't we be fools to not talk about that? Wouldn't we be completely foolish to at least pause once in a while and consider and ask the question, what happens when it's over? Because it happens to everybody. And so this morning we're going to deal with that question. What happens when you die? How can I be ready to meet my maker and know that I'm on the right team when it's over, so to speak? And this morning, you might have guessed, we're going to look at that from a Christian perspective because this is a Christian church and how great it is we can hear from Christ because Christ and Christ alone died and lived to tell about it. I'm thrilled that we're going to be in Luke 6 answering the question, how can I have a right relationship with God tied to what happens when you die? It's the biggest, most important kind of issue because it has to do with even how you live your life now. How great is that? How great is it that I'm not going to stand up here this morning and say, well, here's what I feel happens. I'm so glad, even though we like to hear different perspectives and we like to have our sharing time together, I'm so glad we're not going to do open mic Sunday. And why don't you share? Why don't you share? Why don't you share what you feel will happen? It's so good that we can talk about the uncomfortable, yes. But in a sense, we can give Jesus the microphone. And he can cut to the chase because he loves us and he can help us. And that's what we're going to do this morning. 
The context of Luke 6, at this point in time, we're studying this together as a church. If you're just joining us, great time to just join us because uh, you'll acclimate quickly. But what we've seen so far is Jesus has been showing himself to be the one promised in the Old Testament to be the ultimate king. The ultimate king who would reign forever. The one foreshadowed, the one anticipated, the one predicted, if you'd like, who would bring lasting freedom, who would bring perfect restoration. He would be what King David couldn't ever be. He would be what King Solomon in the Old Testament could never be. Even though they may have been anticipating his coming, Jesus is the ultimate king. That technical word used in the Old Testament for for the ultimate king would be the Messiah. Those other kings were messiahs. They were anointed by God, singled out by God to be important kings, but they were all to point toward the ultimate Messiah, the ultimate king who would bring ultimate freedom. Ultimate freedom when it comes to health. Ultimate freedom when it comes to life and death. Ultimate freedom when it comes to tyranny and oppression. Ultimate justice. He's been showing himself to be the one. How do we know? Because he's been healing people of their diseases. He's done what prophets can't do. He's giving that, that, that proof, if you will, that he's the ultimate deliverer. He raises the dead, ultimate deliverer. He casts out demons so he has a supernatural ability over the powers of darkness. He's got that kind of authority. He's got authority like no one else has. And we've been seeing this, that he's showing, he's, he's, he's demonstrating that he's the king. And he's giving a taste, if you will, a preview of his coming forever lasting kingdom. And now we're at a place where he's just chosen his 12 disciples. He had many disciples. A disciple is a follower. He had many followers, some way on the fringe because they wanted to see what he was about. And he was real popular early on. And then he had disciples, followers. And then he had disciples as in the 12. And he names those 12 apostles because they're going to have authority from him. They're going to proclaim his message on his behalf with authority, authority that he gives them. And that's a long preview, a long introduction to say, now we're at the place before he sends them out, he's got to help them so that they can answer that question we're talking about. How can a person know they have a right relationship with God? Or in terms that we often use, how can a person know what happens when you die and that it's going to be okay? they got to know that. And so he's going to help them know that so they can be ready to rightly represent him. So that's what we're going to see this morning. And I really, to be quite honest, can't wait. I like this sermon so much, I already preached it once. I mean, this is, I just had to come back for more. I'm so glad I came to church today. Um, Our Savior is gracious and kind, answering this for us. Well, by way of setting things up, look with me, if you would, chapter 6, verse 17, where it says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place. 
with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. That's what we've been seeing. He's just, he's just saying the same thing has been happening. It wasn't a fluke that Jesus had the supernatural power. This characterizes his earthly ministry. And so you've got the masses, if you will. You've got the disciples. And then you've got the disciples who he just called apostles. And now he's going to teach those apostles. But no doubt the others can hear. The others can hear him. This is what's often called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes up high, if we look at all the gospel accounts. And then he comes back down Part way, they're on a plateau, something level, where he can talk to them, where he can instruct them, where he can prepare them. What does it look like to have a person belong to Christ's kingdom? Let me put it another way. What does it look like for you or for me or for these folks to be a citizen belonging with rights and privileges, a citizen? to Christ's kingdom, the kingdom that will ultimately last forever. How relevant is that question? I hope you came here this morning thinking, man, I hope I hear a relevant message. That's such a buzzword too, relevant. Give me relevant. Don't give me something not relevant. I need it to really speak to my life. I hope you came here hoping for a relevant message. How relevant is the question, how can I know I'm a citizen of Christ's coming eternal kingdom? Uh, kind of relevant. <laughs> it's relevant to every single person in this room. Little, big, young, old, it's relevant to all of us. And here's where I hope I can be more than a public speaker. Hope I can be a genuine pastor who really cares for sheep. I hope I can be a, a, a true loving human being, loving my neighbor as myself. My prayer this morning is, is that God would help me to be a good evangelist. You might have strange pictures of evangelists in your head. You're thinking, he's not even in a suit today. Um, well, an evangelist is more than someone in a suit. An evangelist is more than someone who yells at people. An evangelist is somebody who tells the good news to people so that they would believe the good news and be citizens of Christ's coming foreverlasting kingdom. And here's what I know is true. My words, spiritually speaking, are, are going to fall short of the front row right here. And it's hard. It's like one of those dreams you have and you try to, try to throw a ball and it goes about this far. That's me right now, but it's not a dream spiritually. I'm going to try to preach, and my words are going to go, Phew, and they're just going to fall short. So that's why I pray, God, help me to be evangelist. God, help people not to have hard hearts, that they really would grapple with the issue of, do I belong to the coming eternal kingdom? Do I belong to Christ? Am I a citizen? And so I'm praying. I'm saying, God, help us. Literally, God, help us to be assured that we do belong or to know that we don't belong so that by God's grace we might belong. And here we go. 
Here we go. Verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Who does the kingdom belong to? In other words, who who belongs to the kingdom? Who, who's a kingdom citizen? Who, who, who under my rule and reign, who, who's in? And he says, counterintuitively, for shock value probably, strangely, getting our attention, those who belong to the kingdom, those who possess the kingdom, those who are kingdom citizens are poor people. And think about how weird that is. That doesn't make any sense. The kingdom of God, the most valuable thing, the most valuable commodity, the most valuable, most important place ever belongs to people who have nothing. That's weird. Because we would naturally think the rich people can have whatever they want and they, of anybody, could have the most valuable thing because they're rich and that, that's what they can do. And he's turning it on his head to certainly get our attention. What? What? And what's so interesting, too, is, and we're going to see this later because he's going to tie all this to himself, which gives us a clue. We're going to get the clue later. He's not just talking about physically poor people. And Matthew's account makes it utterly clear and based upon more that Jesus said. He's actually not talking about physically poor people at all. What's he talking about? He's talking about people who are spiritually poor and they know it. Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 5, he says, blessed are the poor, what? Poor in spirit. Yeah, a lot of you knew that because you've heard it and we read it earlier for scripture reading. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He's talking about people who are spiritually poor. People who, who don't have anything spiritually. They're the ones who actually belong to his coming kingdom. They're actually the ones who can know that they're right with God when they die if they know that they themselves have nothing. They're spiritually poor. They're needy. Some people have liked to use the synonym, they're bankrupt. That's a good little word that is a troubling word. But Jesus says those are the blessed people. That's weird, too. That's odd. How could he say that? Why would he say that? You would naturally think, if I'm spiritually rich, because I do this, and I do that, and I give this, and I give that, and I have this kind of heritage, and this kind of lineage, and I'm this committed, and so I'm spiritually rich, because I've got all of these check marks done. I'm in. And Jesus says, no, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I do love it, by the way. He says, theirs is the kingdom of God. It's a present possession. They possess it now, even if they're not there yet. How can he say this? 
How about if you just look back to Luke chapter 5? We were there not very long ago. And in Luke chapter 5, he says something that would complement what he says here. uh, Where it says um, that he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. It's pretty straightforward, that image. People who think they're healthy don't go to a doctor. I'm fine. I'm good. I'm healthy. Jesus is putting himself in the position of physician. People who are going to be willing to come to me are people who know that they're sick. And he didn't mean literally sick there. As the context would show, he's talking about spiritually sick. If they know that they have the disease, they say, doctor, help me. That's a great parallel to what we're seeing. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. They know they have the sickness. In chapter 5, chapter 6, they know that they have nothing to give to God. They know they have nothing to offer. If we cross-reference maybe mentally Old and New Testament, we can think of Psalm 14. No one does good, no, not one. Spiritually bankrupt. That's reality. That's what God says about us. Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul quotes it. Same thing. We're poor. We're poor spiritually. We're bankrupt spiritually. And Jesus is saying, if you know that, you're the kind of person that belongs to my kingdom. You're the kind of person who is a a current possessor of that kingdom citizenship. Now, this is so countercultural, it's not even funny. Because what do we say when someone asks us? So do you have an assurance that when you die that you're going to go to heaven? We, We say yes. Well, what do you base that on? And if we're a true, you know, American-spirited person, what do we say? I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I possess goodness. I possess value. I possess enough spiritual riches to get in. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the people who, in other words, agree with God that they're not a good person. Agree with God that they're spiritually bankrupt. Because why? Because if you realize you have nothing, only then will you ever truly realize and understand who Jesus is and why he came and what he did. If I'm good on my own, I'm spiritually rich because I do lots of stuff. I don't need atonement. I don't need a substitute. I don't need Christ's righteousness. Jesus wants his disciples to get this because he knows what's in every one of our hearts and it's, I'm a good person. And in reality, it's like 1 John says, we're calling God a liar. We're calling God a liar. Luke chapter 18, verse 19. Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. Now you could think this is a this is kind of a downer message. I don't want to see a show of hands. How about you know? I, I'll put my hand up. This is, this is kind of heavy. I thought the I thought these were the be happy attitudes. You know? Yeah, be happy, have joy. He's going there, but it starts with right out of the gate. Blessed are the poor, the bankrupt. Having nothing, people, spiritually. Why? Because then you are seeing yourself for who you really are and you need Christ. 
Here's what we do. We, what we do is we judge, each, we, we judge ourselves based upon other people. And you know what? I got more than you got. I'm not as bad as you are. And even if you're better than me, because you're church people, I, uh, maybe if you're better than me, I know people who are worse than me. It's a competition. <laughs> it's how we figure it out. And the reality ends up being in Scripture, God doesn't base acceptability on our competition with each other of who's worse or better. It's do we meet His holy standard and do we treat Him like He's God? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the, the key point of the law. And none of us do it. And God says none of us do it because we've all sinned. Oh. Jesus is kind and gracious here by saying, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They're the ones who are going to see their need for a Savior. They're the ones who are going to get Jesus, if you will. Well, building on the imagery of the poor, he goes to the next level. Really, the, verse 20 is the pinnacle. It's the centerpiece of it all. But now that we, we've kind of been knocked out at our knees, so to speak, verse 21 then says, Blessed are you who are hungry now. What kind of people are hungry people? They're poor people. They don't have money to buy food. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. I don't have any money, so I can't buy food. I'm hungry. I, I need to have my needs met. And Jesus is saying, if that's your condition now, that's good. Because you're going to know that you need to have your needs met. You've got to have your hunger met. Also, if you cross-reference to the, to the Matthew 5 version, blessed are those who are hungry, just hungry people. I mean, we're all hungry right now. It's almost noon. I'm so blessed because I'm always hungry. <laughs> I mean, that's like saying I'm blessed because I'm poor. Well, sometimes poor people are meant to be cared for in the Bible because they're not able. Sometimes poor people are labeled as lazy. Jesus isn't saying blessed are the lazy. Same kind of thing here. Blessed are the hungry. Well, we're all hungry. We're blessed. Isn't that good? No, no, blessed, blessed are those who hunger. What does the Matthew account say? Anybody know for bonus round? Yeah, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for something, for righteousness. This is crucial that we grasp this. Jesus is identifying, he's saying, those are the ones, you want to be like that person, that's the enviable person, the blessed person, the person that God affirms is the person who is spiritually starving. I have no way of satisfying my own thirst. I have no way, no means by which I can satisfy my own hunger. And Jesus is saying that's exactly the kind of person who belongs to the kingdom. You say, why would he do that? Because we realize, like people who have no money, they're going to have to have their needs met by someone else. Right? i got to have somebody step in and do it for me. i got to have somebody else step in and do it for me. I'm not self-dependent. I need. I need. Matthew 5, 6 is that cross-reference text. One major problem we have, and I'm part of the problem, is we don't 
identify God's standard for what it really is. I'm putting my arm up like this, just making a point of reference. What's God's standard? What's God's law? What's God require of us? Well, just be good. Try. Nobody's perfect. Glad I'm not as bad as that other guy. You know, you get pulled over by the policeman. What am I thinking? There are so many other people out there that are doing such worse things than me. Why are they stopping me? It's a competition. Instead of, here's God's standard. Here's God's law. And His law calls for righteousness. Key important word in light of our cross-reference passage. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness is used in Scripture in relationship to God's law. God's law, God's standard is a righteous standard. It just means straight. He doesn't compromise it. And God's law, based upon what Jesus says when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? He summarizes the law. The Jews agree with him. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There it is. Boom. And if we're totally self-deluded and naive, we go, oh, I'm so glad. That's easy. (laughs) To love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself while you're at it? I mean, the reality is, for Jesus saying no one is good except God, for the Apostle Paul to say all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the reality is none of us in this room have ever loved God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. None of us. Because none of us are perfect law keepers. That's the righteous standard. Just just while we're at it, I'll, I'll quote Jesus elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel account. Matthew chapter 19, verse 17. When Jesus is asked, how can I get eternal life? Jesus' response is, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. How about that? You know, that's Jesus getting an F in evangelism class. By many standards. Jesus, what are you doing telling people that? I mean, they were perfectly there, perfect candidate. They, they, they came to Jesus and said, what can I do to enter, gain eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. And we know what the commandments are. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why did he say do that? Because that's the righteous standard. Jesus shouldn't get an F in evangelism class. He's making sure we all understand what the standard is so we all know that we fall short of the standard and we're standard breakers because we don't really love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength so that we can then be in a place where we can be blessed by God because we say, I can't do this. God, please give me righteousness, right? I'm hungering and I'm thirsting after righteousness. We would never do that if we didn't know this was the standard. That's what I was saying while I'm part of the problem. To the degree I don't tell people what the standard is, I'm part of the problem. How can you gain eternal life? Just obey God perfectly. (sighs) You know? But I don't. God, please help me. I have no means by which I can secure righteousness. In other words, law-keeping. I can't do it. I need it. I know that's the standard. Jesus said it. It's recorded in Matthew 19, 17. You see, hungering and thirsting after the righteousness you know that God requires. 
that's a blessed person because they're in a position to understand that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. Back to Matthew 5. He said, I came to fulfill the law. Oh, I'm starting to see how the pieces fit together. He's the one. He's the, he's the one who met the righteous standard. He's the one who fulfilled all righteousness. Now I'm starting to understand more of Scripture even better. The Sermon on the Mount helps me. I'm thinking of Philippians chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul is thrilled beyond measure because he realizes that in Christ he can have a righteousness not of his own because that would be impossible. He can have a righteousness not of his own that comes from the law, his own law keeping. It comes from God. Gift, right? Given to a poor person spiritually. And it's in Christ because Christ fulfilled the law. See, I'm so glad I came to church because I wouldn't have preached this to myself today. I should, though. I should. How can I know I belong to the eternal kingdom, the kingdom of Christ? Starts by making me realize, or me realizing that I'm spiritually poor spiritually hungry because I realize I need righteousness. You need to realize, we need to realize we need righteousness. And we lack it. I realize that's a big word. I've used it who knows how many times in this sermon. It's a churchy kind of word. It's typically associated with self-righteous and that's just a bad, you know, slam term on somebody. But you got to know it's a Bible word. Righteous, justice, they're together. Similar words coming from the same origin. God is a judge. He has a just law, a righteous law, a standard. You've got to meet it. I've got to meet it. Everybody's got to meet it. None of us do. Jesus does. But we would never, ever, ever, ever see that if we didn't realize that we're lawbreakers. And we would never, therefore, be hungry, craving what we know God desires. This is good to know. This is great to know. Satisfaction is found in Christ. The hunger is met in Christ. Then he says in verse 21, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Another counterintuitive statement. I'm miserable. I don't have. I'm spiritually poor. Maybe even think not 21st century, middle America, stuffy. Think Middle East, more prone to wear emotions a little bit more openly. Weeping, God, no, help, I'm miserable, right? He says, blessed are those people in the flow here and in this context. They're weeping because they don't have righteousness. They're weeping because they're spiritually poor. God, I'm desperate. I'm so smoked. It's not even funny. I, I, I have no hope. Ah, you know? Jesus says that's the blessed person. They're the one that's going to laugh. They're the one that's going to have joy and rejoicing because they're the one who's going to see Jesus as, as the one who He really is. And they're going to say, Ah, my righteousness is in Christ. I have joy and happiness because I'm no longer under that obligation. It's awesome to be able to see that. Isn't it interesting, though, how we're at a place where we don't want anybody to weep about being desperate or miserable? 
we just want to, you know, say, hey, we're going to have to get you some counseling. Because you're, you're, you're psychologically unstable. You know, if that's fostered because they realize that they're under God's holy law and therefore not ready to meet their maker, I want them to be there because Jesus says they're blessed. It doesn't mean they have to stay there. It means they need to hear the solution to the problem. And here's where religion doesn't help. Here's where moralistic do-gooderism principles to follow doesn't help. Here's where I completely agree with Karl Marx. Amazing, I'm going to quote Karl Marx in the sermon and say, I completely agree that religion is the opium of the people. Now, he's trying to throw God under the bus entirely, and I'm not, so it's different. But he's on to something. I mean, the this, this stop clock is right twice a day kind of thing. Religion, if it's human-made, contrived moralism and just more principles, sometimes with Bible verses tacked on, that's the opium of the people. Then we're just comfortably numb. Quoting Marx, I'll quote Pink Floyd too while we're at it. Pop culture can be very helpful. I don't want people to be happy. I don't want them to be comfortably numb. I don't want them to be that way at all. But religion will do that. And it will cause them to not hunger and thirst after righteousness. They'll see themselves as spiritually rich and they won't be miserable and weeping. It's the worst thing. That's why I don't mind, hopefully, graciously and lovingly, helping people to see the futility in the religion they're clinging to if it's not biblical Christianity. And you say, hey, you know, some religion is better than no religion. At least it kind of helps them keep, keeps them stable and makes them good citizens. I, I would rather have them see that it's a total sham and totally empty. Because I want them to be where Jesus wants them to be. I want them to be blessed. Spiritually miserable. So I can point them to Christ who will make them eternally happy because of his righteousness. And then it says in verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you. Oh, more counterintuitive stuff, right? And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And now, that, that, that is super helpful, by the way, the end of that verse. Now we know he's been talking about spiritual things. That's, now we know I haven't just been reading that into the passage. That's where he was going all along. That's like the, the cheating by looking ahead. Uh, this has all been about a spiritual matter. It's been all about Christ and how you would see Christ. And, and he makes that patently clear now on account of the Son of Man. That's what these things are about in relationship to Jesus. That's a messianic title, an official title for Jesus. Do notice the emphasis of verse 22, though. This is strong. This is people, this is people, people hate you. People say bad things about your character, about your name. This is a real good one for for us as we struggle with being popular. Good one for moms and dads who really want to be popular. Good one for teenagers who really want to be popular. I just want to be popular. I just care about what everybody thinks about me. And that's really what's lasting. And that's really where I find my significance. And Jesus is saying, you know what? You're blessed if people persecute you. You're blessed if people say awful things about your very personhood, your name character if it's because of your connection to me and your commitment to christ 
So what we seem on the surface, what we see on the surface to be bad and wrong could actually be evidence of something good and right. And by the way, you want to get people to not like you? Just correct them when they say they're a good person. Just point out that there's no hope in their religion or the religion of their parents or the religion of their grandparents, if that's the case. I mean, you just declared war. Jesus is putting things in perspective, though, and he's saying, yours is the kingdom. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I'll go eat some worms is how it seems right here. And I'm miserable, cut off from my family, cut off from society, cut off, losing business deals, whatever it might be. Not because you're just unlikable, which we struggle with sometimes. But because of association with the true Christ, Jesus says, let me help you and put it in perspective. Let me help you and put it in perspective. Then it says in verse 23, rejoice in that day. And leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Let me, let me just give you a historical perspective. There, there's a track record. You're on the right side. Look what they did to the prophets in the Old Testament. But please do notice, this, this is great. This is balm for our souls, especially, especially when we are persecuted and we have difficulties because of our association with Christ. He does say, your reward is great in heaven. I love the balance. Okay, so we started by Jesus saying, yours is the kingdom. Belongs to you now, present possession. But then he says, your reward is in heaven. So we possess that which is secure in heaven. This is important. It's important in Jesus' ministry with his disciples. It's important throughout the New Testament. It's important like in the book of Hebrews where people are being persecuted. It's ours now, current Citizenship is ours now and nothing, 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 nothing can take it away though they take everything else away because our reward is secure in Christ who's in heaven. And that's where I have my little charismatic moment in the sermon and just go, yes, you know, man, so good. Relevance for you today, relevance for me. Yeah, relevant for you if you're not a Christian because you're getting some help. Relevant for you if you're a Christian because you're getting some help. It's encouraging. Helps me maybe to appreciate a little bit better what was said in the early church after this time in Acts, in Acts chapter 5, verse 41. After they were persecuted, the disciples of Jesus, it says they were rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So your very name will be drugged through the mud, privileged to suffer for the name. Christ. And now we're going to be extremely politically incorrect. You might be thinking... I think it's already been that. I don't know. Here, Jesus is really going to offend our sensibilities and our pluralistic 
multicultural kind of milieu where we are. We're not the first culture to be there either, by the way. But Because here Jesus is having said all the positive stuff. That's right, that stuff was positive. Here's who the kingdom belongs to. And now he's going to say, here's who it doesn't belong to. That's what Jesus does. So let's work our way through this quickly. In verse 24, he says, But woe, how terrible, how regretful. You don't want to be this person. How, how saddening, uh, how awful. But woe to you. But do notice he's personal, though. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. I do this and I do that and I'm somebody and I got this box checked and I've got that letter of affirmation and I am a good person because I'm so committed. I'm spiritually wealthy. I'm ready to go. And Jesus says, you've gotten your reward. Isn't that kind of interesting? He says it's a reward. Yeah, you got, you got a trophy. You got a trophy. And it says loser on it. How awful. How awful. I mean, this is not like us in our enraptured self-esteem culture where everybody gets a trophy because everybody's a winner, which doesn't make any sense. But anyway, um, it's no wonder our kids grow up not motivated in life um, or that's not how life is. But anyway, um, <laughs> they're ready for socialism anyway. So now I'm off on a complete different tangent. Um, <laughs> This is bad here. Your congratulations, your glory, your, your, your hour is in the temporal here and now. You get a trophy. You're a loser. The kingdom of heaven isn't yours. You don't belong. It's awful. Jesus isn't awful. He's honest. But it's, but it's an awful thing to be deceived. Then verse 25 says, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry, satisfied, gorged on religion, self-made righteousness, failing to know that perfection against the standard is required. You'll be hungry. Verse 25 then says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. What a role reversal. You're not rejoicing in the sun. You're, re you're, you're rejoicing in self and what you do and feeling so confident. It's going to be mourning and weeping. The word that he uses here is used in the Old Testament sometimes, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, and it's used for the kind of laughter you would have that's associated with, with a, a sinister kind of thing. <laughs> making fun of people. Like making fun of Christians, those true Christians. Who, who do they think they are? How ludicrous and crazy, believing in substitutionary atonement. It offends every, everyone's sensibilities to think that you don't have to be a good person earning your way and that you can trust in Christ who did everything right and be forgiven of your sins. How crazy. What idiots. Ha. 
says, you know what? It's not a good place to be in. Laughing now, not laughing later. Verse 26 then says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let's first apply that to the, to the twelve. Because they're leaders. They're in, in, in the prophet mode, if you will. As you guys are sent out, and everybody's like, oh, that was awesome, man. I, that, was, that was great. That was wonderful. Stroke my ego. We're affirmed. I just want to tell all you good people out there that God is nice, and you're nice, and isn't that nice? Oh, I like that guy, man. He's awesome. If he keeps talking like that, he's going to have a million-dollar smile in no time in a big church. You know, He's great. And he says, if everybody speaks well of you, Just know that you're in really bad company. Just like they spoke well of the false prophets. Peace, peace. Everything's fine. God likes us. Don't feel bad. Feel good. And he says, woe to you. Now let's apply it broader than the 12. Let's apply it to you and to me as far as a popularity level again. I'm so popular. Everybody likes me. Everybody likes my religion. I'm so open-minded. I'm so tolerant. And I would never, ever, ever do anything to offend anybody's sensibilities. I'm like the most popular person I know. And he says, woe to you. Because the reality is, if you really belong to Jesus, some people are going to think you're awesome when you tell them the truth. And some people are going to think you're awful when you tell them the truth. What matters ultimately is what Jesus thinks. And he's saying, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, or woe to, woe to, woe to, woe to. And here's where, again, we might be thinking, oh, I can't wait for next week because next week when we move on in the Beatitudes, when we get to the next section, he's talked about this kind of person, he's talked about this person, and I can't wait till he talks about the third category. I kind of am in that other category. Or I know a lot of people in that other category because surely Jesus isn't, you know, as narrow-minded as to say everyone's divided into one or two categories. I mean, that would be like one of those people that says sheep and goats or something. It would be. Jesus doesn't give a third category. He really divides it this way. And that tells us that we're, we're blessed by God because we understand our problem, we understand the solution, or we're under the woe of condemnation. How could Jesus do that, by the way? How, how, how could he be so dogmatic? How could he be so black and white? There's lots of different ways we can answer the question, but I want to give you a helpful explanation that perhaps you haven't thought about lately. Jesus can say, these people are blessed by God who see me for who I am. They see themselves for who they are. And these people are under the condemnation of God, so woe to them. He can say that, because Jesus is the Savior of 
the world. Now you might be thinking, does not compute, does not compute, does not compute. Let it settle in a little bit. That title is used in different ways in different passages. But one way it is used in Scripture, no doubt, in the New Testament, Jesus is the Savior of the world in that He's the one and only Savior. He's God's one and only Son. And there's one, only one way to be saved in this world. And guess what? We're all in this world. And if He's the one and only Son and the one and only Savior, He's the Savior of the world. And He says... You either see me for, for who I am, which is tied to seeing yourself for who you are, or you don't. No third category. <laughs> because there aren't two saviors, 200 saviors, 20 saviors, 2 million saviors. Jesus is the savior of the world. And he's a great and gracious savior. I, I'm here to tell you. I don't need to tell you that. There's something you know to be true about that. He's gracious and kind, so kind that he doesn't come here and say everything's all right. Everything's fine. Take another hit of religion. Drop some more do-gooderism. What an awful Savior he'd be if he did that. He comes and he's honest and truthful and compassionate and kind. And he says, here's how it is. And he equips us with that. He equips us with that. Let's end on this note. What happens when you breathe your last breath? More personally, what's going to happen to you when you breathe your last breath? Which has to do with affecting the way you live now because you can live with confidence and know these things. It has everything to do with something outside of you. And that's good news. It has everything to do with something that you do or don't do. Have done or haven't done. It has to do with the work of another. It has to do with Christ. That's how you can know. That's how you can know. I so love the reality of Romans chapter 4, verse 5. When you visit me in the hospital because the doctors say there's nothing else they can do, and that day's going to come unless I get hit on my bicycle today, which could happen. Okay, in all seriousness, you're going to die young or you're going to die old. Whether it's today or in 25 years. Whether it's with notice or no notice. As a teenager, child, grandparent. So whenever it is, for you or for someone else, for me, just remind me of what's true in light of what we've talked about today. How about this? Romans chapter 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes or trusts in him who justifies, who declares righteous, the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. His faith is counted, his faith in Christ is counted as perfect law keeping. 
in other words. So good. So, 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 so good. Because here's what might happen. You might watch me not at my very best sanctification. Spiritual growth. It might not be my very best day. And you might be thinking, man, what's the deal? I might realize it's not my best day. And you can come and scold me about my attitude. Maybe I need a little scolding because we're supposed to have good attitudes as Christians. But the reality is, God declares righteous, as this text says, the ungodly. This isn't licensed to act ungodly. I'm not going there. He gets there in chapter 6. But I'm trying to impress upon you the reality is, is God doesn't accept us based upon what we've done and our spiritual riches. He accepts us based upon the riches of His Son. And you've got to encourage me with that because even if I'm putting on a good show for you, my heart is not perfected yet. I'm still struggling with sin and doubt and fear. Unless I'm perfected and I'm not if I'm still alive. And I, I say this in all seriousness because I've watched it happen and it's troubled me. And I've thought to myself, I thought that person was a stronger Christian. And maybe it should trouble us and we pray for perseverance and we pray for, 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 for strength. And yeah, we should do that. But we, we've got to know when our, when our theology at its very core, our theology of the gospel is being challenged, we've got to come back to what the gospel is. God declares righteous the ungodly based upon the righteousness of Christ the godly. It's so good. It's so awesome. Because the reality is, even right now, no one in this room has ever loved God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Ever. If you, if you had, you'd be glorified. And if you were glorified, you wouldn't be here right now. You'd be in heaven. And so we're all still struggling right now. Even though it's good to love God, we're supposed to love God, it's the standard. I seek to do that. Now that I'm a Christian, I have the Spirit of God in me. You too? Yes, yes, yes. The reality is, blessed are the poor in spirit. I got nothing. Got everything. Nothing in and of myself. Everything in Christ. And by the way, that is what motivates me to do the right thing. <laughs> right? Because of what he's done for me. And it's not a contradiction. We're motivated for godliness and perseverance and doing the right thing because we know that God justifies the ungodly. Oh, and isn't it great? He not only takes us there and justifies us, He does give us His Spirit and He does transform us. Absolutely, that's the case. And we're motivated out of gratitude, not guiltiness. So be happy if you're spiritually miserable when you're by yourself. Alone without Christ. Be miserable if you're not trusting in Christ so that perhaps by God's grace you might. Father, thank you so much for this morning and thank you for the delight that is ours in Christ, those of us who are resting and trusting in Him. And may we find ourselves all the more impressed with Him, resting in Him perhaps in, in a way that we never have before. But on our own, 
Make the misery pronounced. And make it obvious. For those who aren't trusting in the Savior, God graciously make the misery pronounced. So that they might see that the religion drug or the self-righteousness drug simply doesn't deliver. That they might trust in Christ and give Him praise and give Him glory and give Him honor, even as we do now as Christians. In Jesus' name, amen.